You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. So, it is nice to be able to say Merry Christmas these days without feeling uh, any type of opposition. I remember just maybe a couple years ago, um, people were saying, no, don't say that. Say Happy Holidays, right? Um, but now I think we're all joyfully able to say Merry Christmas. And so turn to your neighbor and say Merry Christmas. <laughs> Christmas is one of the most joyful times of the year. It is one of the most glorious times in the year. Maybe you've driven through a neighborhood. Um, I know there's one in McLean that, um, that we've driven through, and they have some crazy lighting shows every year. And anywhere you drive, you'll see someone with, who has the proper Christmas spirit, and they'll have this amazing and dazzling display of lights and decor. But Christmas, we know, isn't glorious in terms of decoration. There's also the amazing music, right? Someone joked, Christmas season is where Michael Buble reemerges. <laughs> and sure enough, his singing, White Christmas, and all those other holiday hits is amazing. You've heard the kids singing that song. Kids love singing Rudolph, the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, so on and so forth. It's wonderful. The brilliance of the Christmas season doesn't stop there either. And there's also the social life. I know that a lot of our life groups have been celebrating together. You've been doing potlucks and Secret Santa or White Elephant. There's been a lot of gift exchange. It's been good. You've been inviting friends and family to your groups. A lot of people are going over to each, other, each other's homes and celebrating and, and just really having a great time. It really is the most wonderful time of the year, which is why I think it's appropriate for us to speak on glory this afternoon. The only difference is this glory that I'm talking about. It's not about some flashy lights that some person painstakingly put up. It's not some big party that a couple people are hosting. This type of glory that we're talking about, that, that we're going to see here in Scripture, is not man-made. This type of glory that we'll be hearing of is of God. Can you say glory of God? Glory. Amen. So from this text this afternoon, there's three things I think we can learn from. First is this. Real glory appeared in Jesus. Real glory appeared in Jesus. Now, what's the most glorious thing that you've seen? Maybe for some of you guys, Christmas decoration is really not that glorious. So maybe if you've gone to D.C. during 4th of July, you've seen the brilliant display of fireworks, maybe that's pretty spectacular. Or maybe if you guys have gone camping, you've seen the beautiful tops of the trees and the mountain covered with snow. It's really breathtaking. It is glorious to you. Or how about a sunset over the beaches in Hawaii? That always took my breath away. That was beautiful. Maybe it was your beautiful bride on your wedding day. Husbands, turn to your neighbor and say, yeah, that was it. I wasn't saying that sarcastically, by the way. <laughs> right? There's no doubt that we have seen some glory in our lives. We have seen some glory. Things that make our hearts pitter-patter. Things that take our breaths away. Things that make us just stand back and, and are just awestruck. Now, the Bible has some things to say about glory, too. Moses, he witnessed 
a burning bush that did not burn up. The waters of the Red Sea, they rolled back so that a million and a half people were able to walk the dry land from one point to the other. Manna fed God's people in the wilderness each morning for 40 years. Isaiah had a vision of God and his holiness. So I think if we've witnessed any of those events, I think you and I would be taken aback. If you've seen any, if you, if you would go to the Potomac River and see it split, I think you'd be awestruck, speechless. I think if you were to see a miracle in your life or in the life of another person, I think you would just start worshiping God at that moment. It would take your breath away. But in these verses, John is talking about Jesus. And John, he is not comparing the glory of Jesus to those events in the Old Testament. He's saying, yeah, the Old Testament is amazing. Yeah, there's the Red Sea that parted. Yes, there's the pillar of cloud and fire by day and night. Yes, there's these amazing miracles. But that is not on par with the Son of God and his glory. In verse 14, the word John used was dwelt or tent in other parts of Scripture. He used words that were related to this Hebrew word called Shekinah. Can everyone say Shekinah? Shekinah glory in the Old Testament was this. It was God's visible manifestation or glorious presence with his people. That was Shekinah glory. So, for instance, remember that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night? That pillar of cloud and fire protected the people. It led the people. That was the Shekinah glory of God. It was the visible manifestation of his presence. And so John says, Jesus is like that Shekinah glory. Jesus is the glory of God present with his people. And so in verse 14, the word glory that you see is making the same point. It's referring to the visible manifestation of God showing himself to his people. But why is that important? So in Exodus 33, God, after making some promises to Moses, Moses, he asks for something pretty bold right after. Maybe he felt kind of good about himself. Maybe he felt kind of confident. Maybe he felt like he was chummy-chummy with the Lord. But either way, he said this, God, I want to see your glory now. I want to see your glory. And so what did the Lord do? The Lord, he hid Moses in a cleft in the rocks. And the Bible says, then the Lord passed by. But God only let Moses see his back because God said, you cannot see my face and live to tell. You cannot see my face and not die. In that moment, the Shekinah glory, God's presence with his people, Moses, he was unable to look directly at the glory of God. All Moses was able to do or was permitted to do unless he wanted to die, was seeing the fleeing remnants of God's glory. No one can stand before the glory of God and live. No one. God is too great. God is too holy. God is all too consuming. So then verse 18 comes up and says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is what John is saying. He's saying that Shekinah glory that the people experienced or heard about from the Old Testament days, he says, yeah, that, all that stuff was a foretaste of what's to come. In fact, he says, 
we have seen the fullness of God's glory. His glorious presence became a person. You see the Red Sea parting and the pillar of cloud fire? All that was great. But that was just a little sample of what's to come. That was just a little sample of the embodiment of Christ. And brothers and sisters, for so long, you have been living your lives just sampling after the glories of the world. And God is saying, don't you want more? Don't you want the fullest satisfaction? Yes, your relationship is good. Yes, your marriage is good. Yes, getting that six-figure salary is good. Yes, getting that nice sporty car in that awesome house is good. And these are all maybe samples of glory in your life. But is that it for you? It can't be. And he's t- John is telling the people, don't rely on that. That's just a foretaste of what's to come. In fact, you'll get the gloriousness of God in the God-man Jesus. His name is Emmanuel. It means God is with us. He is the one who shows us the Father, the one whom we've never seen. And so it's in Jesus that God has lived in our midst. It is in Jesus that we have seen the glory of God. So why is this important? Have you guys ever considered how much of the temptations that you face every single day has to do with glory? Every single day in our lives, the temptations, the distractions, the sins that we fall into have to do with the glory, have to do with glory. Almost everything that captivates your minds, captivates your hearts, captivates your, your ears and, your, and everything all that is presented to you as being glorious. You want it. So, for instance, maybe you have a coworker who's really pretty or really good looking. And maybe not, it's not just about their physical look. Maybe you're also impressed with their hearts. They're super kind, really sweet people. So you're kind of drawn to their personality, to their looks, to their humor, to their fill-in-the-blank. You're drawn to them. You want to know them more. You want to touch them. You want to experience for what you may think as a moment of glory with them. But not only that, there are material things too that have this glorious appeal. Clothes, cars. Have you, known, have you noticed that the new iPhone X is something that a lot of people want and it's not even that great of a phone? People want it. Hey, I'm an iPhone user. I have no problem. Right? But people are, these things seem so impressive. You just have to have it. There's people who are waiting in line for hours and hours to get stuff like that. Even these, all these things shine with glory too. Or how about popularity or the approval of our peers? This has the same attraction. Like who doesn't want to get praised? Who doesn't want, when you came out this morning or this afternoon to church and you got all dolled up, you put your... You, you, you washed and you put your makeup on, all that stuff. And you guys, you put your suit on. Like, how many of you guys don't want people to notice? Well, of course you want people to notice, right? We, we want get praises. Who doesn't want their boss to take notice of your hard work? We want promotions, not demotions. We want glory, not obscurity. We want our Pinterest site to get the most likes. We want our Instagram to get the most followers. I mean, that's what we want, right? You don't do those things, to not get those things. And ultimately what it all is, is all pseudo-glory, which means this. It's all wannabe glory. All these things that we tend to dedicate our lives to, strive for, these are all wannabe glories. 
You know what pseudo glory is? It's kind of like the hype of Super Bowl. It's the fascination and obsession of celebrities. It's the attraction of if you got it, flaunt it. So trying to look sensuous, perhaps. This whole idea of superficial, physical things. And it looks impressive. It looks impressive. We want it too. We want to experience that. I want what he has. I want to look the way that she looks. I want what they have. I want, I want our church to look like, you know, McLean Bible Church. I see the glory of that magnificent mega church. All these things. Or how about for you on a personal level? I want to earn as many degrees as I can. I want to big, buy the biggest and best house as I can. I want to drive the coolest and the, and the newest car as I can. I won't go to some party that has no namers there. No, it, but if I'm invited by my team's boss, if I'm invited by someone of significance, then I'll go. It's all about glory, self-glory. There's a longing in our hearts for glory, and it cannot be found in wonderful events or beautiful people. Why? Because the thing that you are longing for from the moment that you came to this earth and the last moment you uh, breathe your last breath, all that longing has appeared in Jesus. He is what we're, lo- what we're looking for. He is what we're longing for. Okay, but when Jesus was walking around the earth doing his thing with his disciples, what was his glory like? Was he glowing? Did he have like this ambient light following him wherever he went? They have like a halo like the angels do, right? If you look at some of the cathedral uh, pictures, you see Jesus had like the star behind him, the shininess, right? Was it like that? Well, what did John say? What did the glory of Jesus look like? Now, the thing is this. John could have said, well, you know, the glory of Jesus, it was like when the angels announced his birth. I mean, that's pretty glorious. How awesome would it be? Now, I've, I've gone to many hospital visitations of the birth of your firstborn child. And, and typically how it was is this. I knocked on the door. You let me in. And you guys, you guys are just smiling, and I was able to hold the baby and pray. But Jesus, what happened? He was born, and the angels were shouting, praising. Was that the gloriousness of Christ? Or maybe it was this. It was when he was in the boat and when the wind and waves obeyed him. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? Maybe that was a glorious moment for Christ as well. Maybe that's what John's thinking of. Or maybe it was about the dazzling brightness on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was actually glowing. But no, it wasn't any of those things. It wasn't when Jesus fed the 5,000. It wasn't when Jesus raised the leper. It wasn't when Jesus resurrected the, the, the body of a small girl. It wasn't when Jesus did this or did that or did anything like that. No, you see, instead, John, he described a different and a greater glory that Jesus portrayed, a glory that can only be seen by those who received him and those who bowed down before him. It says in verse 14 and again verse 17, Jesus' glory was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. It wasn't the feeding, it wasn't the calming of the seas. The glory of Christ was represented in two attributes, in two distinguishing marks of Christ, his grace and truth. And folks, that's where it's at. If you want to live a life of glory, pursue a life of grace and truth. If you want to live a life that glorifies Christ, pursue a life of grace and truth. So that goes to our second point. In Jesus, we see the glory of God's grace. 
So grace is something that we may not be too well, over in our, too well aware of in our lives. As a general rule, <clears throat> it goes like this. You get what you pay for, right? Now, you go to a store and you buy something, then you get that. That's what it is. There's no such thing as a free lunch. There's always strings attached. And that's the way the world works. If you work hard, you do well. If you're lazy, you don't do well. But even when you try to do your best, sometimes we can, we try, sometimes it will just blow up in our face. Grace is not the way of life in this world, which makes what he does, what Christ does, and who he is even more glorious. So here's my definition of grace. Understand this. Grace is not getting the punishment you deserve. Grace is receiving the good you did not deserve. Grace is unmerited. It is undeserved favor, being given something for nothing. Being given something for nothing. Now in verse 16 it says this, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What does that mean? Grace upon grace. John is comparing and contrasting the coming of Jesus with God's giving of the law. In verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Well, this is what John is saying. He's saying, from Christ's fullness, we have received grace instead of grace. That's confusing, isn't it? So in the fullness of Christ, we have received grace instead of grace, which is the law. That grace, which is the law, came through, not Jesus, but Moses. But real grace came through Jesus Christ. So you see there's grace, okay? But then there's grace. Now a lot of us think this, that when I say the law, you guys think, oh, that's a bad thing. We're no longer under the law. I don't want anything to do with the law. But the God, but the grace of God is also in the law. Did you know that? The grace of God is also in the law. And here's why. Three, four thousand years ago, when, when God walked with Moses and when God lifted up Moses, God, he did not have to reveal himself to us at all. Did you know that? God, he did not have to tell us about himself at all. God, he didn't have to enlighten people of his presence. He could have left everyone in the dark. And God, he didn't have to give us this righteous standard. He, couldn't ha- he didn't have to show us this What's, what's best for the structure of society. He didn't have to show us these personal ethics that would preserve the human race. You see, God could have totally left people and allowed us to continue just experimenting with ourselves and ultimately destroying ourselves. But in giving us a law, God says this, I am here. In giving us a law, God saying this, the world is not the standard. You to each other, you're not the standard. He's saying, I have given you my righteous standard. And so Jesus shows us the glory of God's grace. What the law could never do, he did. And so by his life, death, and resurrection from the dead, God, Jesus does it. And so it's by grace that God transforms us. Amazing grace. From guilty, wretched sinners to become the children of God. And it's not because of anything we've done, but because of everything Jesus has done. You see, the glory of God is found in the grace of Jesus. If you want to share in the glory of God, it's time for us to start extending a lot of grace to one another as well. Okay? And here's my final point. Jesus has spoken God's final truth. So it was interesting. A few days ago, 
I actually went to the library right next to my house, and I haven't gone there in years. Um, and I decided to check out the religious section, right? So I go there, and there's books I've heard of by R.C. Sproul, who, who recently passed, um, Tim Keller, all these notable theological giants. But then there's this one that said this. It was titled, Jesus was a liberal. I was like, oh, I got to read this. <laughs> so I got it, went to the little desk area, sat down. And um, so this pastor, or this theologian, liberal pastor, <laughs> theologian, essentially the first chapter that he talks about or in his book is this. He stresses the relativity of truth. The relativity of truth. He says, truth is completely subjective. What's true for you is not true for me. What's true for you is not true for me, right? Now, the thing is this. He has to start there. He has to preface this entire book with that statement. Otherwise, he would have no book to write. It's like this. He's saying, guys, there's no absolute truth. No absolute truth. Got it? You got it? Okay, so now let me talk about my feelings. Because that's the book, that's, that's what it was about. He was saying, let's set this straight. There's no absolute truth. The Bible is not completely authoritative. It is not inerrant. It is not inspired. So having settled that, let me tell you how I feel about the Bible. And so I think in the middle of such thinking, there are a lot of people who are kind of tired of that, of that type of talk. And so they're looking for something more substantial. They're looking for absolute truth. Well, God's law was absolute truth. But here's the problem with God's law being the absolute truth. Is that the only problem is that all it could do to us was condemn every single one of us. That's all it could do. It's like this thing in our lives is constantly keeping track of every hiccup in your lives. You know, it's interesting. When you talk to someone and you say, are you a good person? I'm a good person. You say, would you allow me to, to videotape and, and record every moment of your life for one day? And can I broadcast it? They say, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want that. But that's what the law does, you see. The law constantly keeps track of every hiccup in your life, every mix-up, every bad thought, every word that has ever slipped out. And as powerful as it was with its demands, its expectations of you, its standard for you, it was also powerless to change you. It was powerless to change you. But something glorious happened. You see, the word became flesh. So we don't need to look out to see what might be true or what might be fitting for us because the beauty of absolute truth and what the Bible says is that it is true today, it is true tomorrow, and it is true for all eternity. That is the reality of God's truth. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And what's important is that God's glorious truth isn't about bending or unbending those rigid rules of law. No, rather the absolute truth was embodied in a person, God the Son. He is the Word, He is the creator of all truth, and He appeared to walk and talk among us. It's through His grace and truth that He has revealed the fullness of His glory. So hear me out. Tomorrow is Christmas Day. And so the temptation that we'll have is to simply immerse yourself into the festivities of, Christ, of Christmas morning, drink some eggnog, watch a, is there a football game, I don't know, hang out with our friends, family, just open presents after present. But here's what God is challenging with us today, as well as for tomorrow and for the rest of this new year. 
we cannot confront the truth of Christ and remain unaffected. If you say Jesus is true, you cannot live the rest of your life unchanged. If you say Jesus Lord, and if you say he is truly the embodiment of God's glory, then you cannot live your life as if it's never happened or that that truth is, truth is not truth. And here's the challenge, guys. It's presented to us today and for the new year, I hope. May your lives be filled with ambition so work hard. May it be filled with laughter so have a good time with your friends and family. May it be filled with joy. May it be filled with goodness. But may we as a ministry here never forget that the glory of Christ is revealed in our hearts and lives when, not, not when we're successful, not when we do this, or not when we get married. The glory of Christ is revealed in your hearts and in your mind and in your lives when you pursue after the truth of Christ and the grace of Christ. You get that? It is the truth and the grace of Christ. It is truth that's found through Scripture and is also the grace when we live out our lives of grace, grace, especially to those who do us wrong. So take this moment to reflect on the glory of God that has been revealed to us. There's no further searching needed. There's no other games to be played. Look to the truth and grace of Christ. And our objective is this. When you do, you will know him more. How awesome is that? When you seek after the truth and grace of Christ, you will know Jesus more, and you will be known by him. Okay? So let's go ahead and pray. So as we take this moment to pray, just think about what the Lord's been revealing in your hearts. I think we need to have a clear understanding that while today is Christmas Eve, and while it would have been so much more fun and maybe even traditionally appropriate for us to talk about the manger, Bethlehem, the wise three kings, that we had to understand why Jesus was sent in the first place. God, I thank you that you sent your son 2,000 years ago that the Son of God put on flesh, left your state of glory, eternal bliss, to a state of such humility to live amongst this creation. And Father, we're sorrowful that it was because of our rebellious hearts, it was because of our sinfulness that led you to this great sacrifice of your Son. We want to just recognize right now that while we do celebrate this season, but more than anything, like presents or family or, or festivities, God, we simply want to worship you as a God of grace who bestows upon us something that is so undeserved. We don't, we can't earn it. We will never earn it. We are undeserving. In fact, Lord, we are ill-deserving. And yet, what do you do? Grace upon grace upon grace. You are a good God. You are a gracious Father. You are dependable. You are loving. You are sovereign. 
So brothers and sisters, friends, at this moment, we know what we need to pray for. That in Christ is the glory of God. That in Christ there is the grace of God. And in Christ there is the truth of God. What are you struggling with today? And what do you need to repent and submit before him? Let's take a moment just to meditate and reflect on what we've heard today. Let's pray.